Hey, I want us to, um, I know today is uh, Palm Sunday, and um, what a great day that is. It really has stirred in my heart over this last week, thinking about being in, in Jerusalem. But um, I, I really do want us to talk about um, the fact that, that next week is going to be Easter, right? Everybody hear that? Next week's Easter? They're not excited yet, Chris. I don't know. Where we're... Come on, let's crank it up. Next week, the resurrection. Next week, Jesus rose. Okay, next week, we're going to celebrate it. You all need to get happy in the Lord or something here this morning. So it's only a week away, and it's going to be, it's the greatest day in history. And you know what? If you invite somebody, if you invite somebody to come and they get to meet Jesus next week, it could be the greatest day in their history. So let's be inviting some people to come and be with us for both services next week, okay? And uh, I'm just so excited about it because, listen, everything hangs on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 puts it like this. It says, and if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and in vain. Your faith also is empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified that God, of God that he raised up Jesus Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Is there anybody here today that says, thank God I'm not still in my sin? Thank God I am forgiven. Thank God he really has, has been raised. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. If Christ hasn't risen, man, then it's all just a sham. It's a game. There's nothing real about it. But the good news is, and we're going to hear more about it next week, the good news is he is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. So we're looking forward to next week. It's going to be great. I'm, I'm excited about the celebration. But before we get to next week, you know what? I think we need to be sure we stop and celebrate this week. The Jesus going into Jerusalem, entering through the gates and, and all of the celebration that took place during that week, that was that, that day, that was wonderful. But we all know, we all know that in the heart of Jesus, he was headed to the cross. You know, I'm concerned that in our um, modern world and modern Christianity that, um, that, that we would diminish the cross. I mean, there, there's a real reason we keep a cross in front of our church. Can I tell you that we'll never outgrow the cross? And I don't ever want us to become so preoccupied and so busy and, and, and just so moving towards all of the stuff that God has for us that we forget about everything that Jesus has already done for us. Amen? You know, in uh, Colossians chapter 2, this verse kind of jumped out at me this last week. It says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I love this verse. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. In it. You know, if you just read that one verse, you really wouldn't know what it was. But we look back and we go, we know that what it was, that it was the cross. And having taken it, nailed it to the cross. What did he nail to the cross? 
I like how the Passion Translation puts it. It puts it like this. It says, he canceled out every legal violation we had on our record and the old arrest warrant that stood to indict us. Now, I don't want anybody to raise their hands here, but I, I would venture to say that there have been a few people that have had some indictments against them in their life. <laughs> that, that maybe you've even had an arrest warrant issued. Maybe you've had some outstanding obligation. Uh, years ago, and this is a um, confession, you know, they say confession that it's uh, good for the soul, bad for the reputation, but good for the soul. So, uh, <laughs> right, my confession today is that years ago, I, um, I, I spent a weekend in Parchment, Mississippi at the Mississippi State Penitentiary. Um, I was there, thankfully, doing ministry, an amazing weekend of ministry. A group from uh, Lee University, we had gone on this outreach weekend, and, and coming back, we were riding this guy's car, and I was, happened to be driving the car, and we're coming through Mississippi. Well, it's late. We're trying to get back to school, and um, he had this, uh, this little ungodly device called a radar detector. Now, I have a conviction about that. I believe if you're going to speed and break the law, you deserve to get caught. So, um, but uh, he had this radar detector, and it was constantly beeping, beep, 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 beep. And all of a sudden, he reached over. He says, I'm tired of the thing. He pulls it out. He pulls it out, you know, unplugs it, and he lays over and goes to sleep. And we're cruising down some back road in Mississippi, and all of a sudden, I see these flashing lights, and they spin around in the road and come, and man, they, and they they're chase us down, you know, and pull over, and Cletus comes up to the window, and um, you know, I don't know exactly who it was, but, uh, but anyhow, I, I got a speeding ticket. Well, everybody that was in the car felt bad about it. They were all sleeping, and I was, um, I was driving, so everybody pitched in. Now, th- we don't want this message going out public, all right, because they don't know this, but um, so I was a poor college student. I thought, man, I've got all this money in my pocket. <laughs> They've all paid me for this ticket. I'm in Tennessee, that took place in Mississippi, and so I just didn't pay the ticket. Now you're for justice. Oh, I see how you are. Oh, a couple weeks ago, they didn't care about justice. Now, you know. So I didn't pay the, I didn't pay the ticket. And, uh, and years and years later, you know, um, I went, go on it. And uh, we move out of the country, and Yvette thought it was for missions. I was running from this uh, warrant, you know, so I could see somebody from Mississippi. Hey, boy. You know, uh, so, uh, and, uh, and I'm telling, and so I'm, this thing was hanging over me, and every now and then, I, it would just convict me, and I'd think about it, and, and then I, I read this story one time about, about these people having these warrants and owing these debts and how interest racked up. And man, I'm serious. So I, I finally called, tried to find the place, find the ticket. And just, I said, they couldn't find a record of it. But I still, I sent a love offering to the state of Mississippi just, <laughs> just to be sure. But let me ask you people, has anybody ever had an indictment against us? Listen to what it says. He canceled out every legal violation we had on our record. Do you know every sin, every ungodly thought, and every unrighteous word, every wrong motive of our heart is an indictment against us? But it says he erased it all. He erased all of our sins, our stained soul. He deleted it all, and it cannot be retrieved. Hallelujah. Woo! I mean, you can't find a tech guy that can dig deep enough to go back and find your sins, right? Listen, I'm telling you, this is good news. Everything we once were in Adam has been placed onto his cross. 
and nailed permanently there as a public display of cancellation. Listen to what Jesus did for you. It says, then he made a public spectacle of all of the powers and the principalities of darkness, stripping away from them every weapon and all of their spiritual authority and power to accuse us. He stripped away all of the authority, all of the power, all of the right for the enemy to come in, the accuser of the brethren. He took it away from him so that they, the enemy cannot point his finger in your face and say, oh yeah, but, and try to remember, remind us of our past. Is anybody thankful for forgiveness, for the shed blood of Jesus that takes away not only the sin of the world, but takes away my sin? It says, then Jesus, and he nailed, it permanently, he nailed it permanently there as a public display of cancellation. Then Jesus made a public spectacle of all of the powers and the principalities of darkness, stripping away from them every weapon and all of their spiritual authority and the power to accuse us by the power of the cross. Folks, I'm telling you, if there's not a cross, we don't get to a resurrection, we will never outgrow the cross in our lives. Thank God for the cross of Jesus Christ. So because of the power of the cross, Jesus led them around as prisoners in a procession of triumph. He was not their prisoner. They were his. Do you hear this? Everything. Every unrighteous, ungodly, every demonic force, every power from hell that tries to come against you has been defeated in the name of Jesus Christ. It was defeated at the cross. You know what? They didn't take his life from him. He laid his life down for you and for me. And he did it, as Jonathan was saying, he did it because of love. John chapter 10 puts it like this. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to pick it up again. This command, this authority, I received from my father. Folks, you know what? Jesus loved us so much that he became one of us. The Bible says that he humbled himself (laughs) to become a man. That it was a humbling experience to put on flesh and to experience the temptations and the trials and the pain and the suffering that we went through so he could identify with us. Listen to how Hebrews chapter two says it in the translation version. It says, since all of his children have flesh and blood, so Jesus became human to fully identify with us. And for you this morning, I think we should put it like this, to fully identify with me. When nobody else in the world knows and can understand what you're going through, what you've suffered, what you've endured, can I tell you, Jesus knows. Jesus can identify with you. He did this so that he could experience death and annihilate the effects of the intimidating accuser who holds against us the power of death. By embracing death, Jesus sets free. Jesus sets free. Anybody glad to be free today? He gives us freedom. He gives us freedom. Embracing death, by embracing death, Jesus sets free those who live their entire lives in bondage to the tormenting dread of, uh, dread of death. For it is clear, listen to this, it is clear he did not do this for the angels. He did it for the sons and for the daughters of Abraham. He did it for you and you and you and for me. Just turn to the person beside you and say, he did it for you. 
And this is why he had to be a man and take hold of our, humani- of our humanity in every way. He made us his brothers and his sisters and became our merciful and faithful king, priest before God, as the one who removed our sins to make us one with him. He suffered and endured every test and temptation so that he can help us every time we pass through the ordeals of life. Listen to this. We, we as a church always want to help people when they're in trouble, help people in need. Um, many of you heard that this just what last yesterday, last night, that uh, the city of Alto and some of the other places had devastating tornadoes came through. I sent a close friend, Pastor Ron Rose, the pastor of Alto Community Church down there, that, hey, let us know what we can do to help. Let us know. And if you've got time and energy and ability this week, I would tell you, go down, help. They're going to need help to, to sort out the devastation from these tornadoes. We've, we've gone to Joplin. We've gone to other places throughout the years to help people. We are a helping community. We are a body, we are a body of believers that cares for people. I said, we are a body of believers that cares for people. Amen? But can I tell you? As much as we love and as much as we care for people, we can't help every person at every point of their need. Not one of us here can forgive your sins. Not one of us here can come in and can release you from the lies and from the bondage that have tried to keep you captive and torment your life. Not one of us here can give you the freedom, can give you the freedom that Jesus Christ created you to live in. Not one of us here, we can fill your hearts with the love of Almighty God. Not one of us here can help you to the degree that Jesus Christ can help you. And can I tell you, there is not one point, not one place, not one need, not one area of your life, not one thing that you've done in the past, not one thing that you did yesterday, not one thing that you thought, said, or did this morning that Jesus Christ cannot come and can help us with. He has made provision for every need of our lives. So he's the one that we run to forgiveness for forgiveness. He's the one that we run to when the enemy's after, when temptation's on our heels. He's the one that we run to. He's the one that strengthens us. He's the one that, help, that heals us. He's the one. This week, <coughs> excuse me, this week we got a report that one of the ladies here in the church that has, we've been praying for, and she's just came through and just overcame um, just a, a serious bout with with cancer and got a report this week that cancer's returned into her body. Listen, we're going to pray and we're going to believe God. I said, we're going to pray. We're going to believe God. We're going to believe God to manifest victory one more time. But can I tell you this? You and I can't touch her immediately, but Jesus can go to the point. He can go to the place of disease. He can go to the place of sickness and he can release her and he can make her whole. We're going to stand with her. We're going to believe her. We're going to believe with her for that to happen. And Jesus can help you at every point of your need, at every point of your life, whether it's anxiety or stress or frustration, whether it's difficulties in a marriage or a workplace, whatever it is I'm telling you, Jesus is the one that helps us. And he did it. He completed that work on the cross. He completed that work on the cross. With everybody's head bowed, nobody looking around this morning, let me just ask, is there anybody here this morning that says, you know what, I've never asked Jesus to come into my life to forgive my sins, to be my Lord and to my Savior, but I need that help in my life today. If that's you, would you just lift your hand and say, that's what I want in my life. I want Jesus to forgive my sins, to cleanse me, and to make me a new person today. Amen. Is there anyone? 
All right, everybody's good there. How about this? Is there any area where you need healing, where you need hope, where you need freedom in your life today, and you want to ask Jesus to do that this morning? Yes, 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 all over the place, all over the place, yes. Let's pray. Come on. Father, right now we thank you for the great gift that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And right now we thank you. We thank you that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus. You appointed him to a a cruel, torturous death on the cross. And when he was on that cross, he loved us so much that he was bearing our sins. He was bearing our shame. He was bearing our guilt. He was bearing our infirmities that we might receive hope and help and forgiveness and strength at any point in time when we come and ask. And that's what we do right now. We ask. We ask Jesus that you will just come, that you will minister, that you will pour your life, your goodness, your healing into each and every one of our lives in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen, amen. You know, every time we take communion, that's, um, that's what we're doing. We're saying, Jesus, thank you for your life. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your finished work. Thank you for what you did, what you're doing, and what you're going to do for us. And this morning, it is such a thrill. It's an honor to have Pastor Michael Mock come, and he's going to share with us for a few minutes. Pastor Mike, come on, you guys welcome Pastor Mike with us this morning. I'm telling you, Pastor Mike and his family um, expressed and showed me some of the greatest hospitality that I've ever seen. They do a great work in the kingdom of God. And, um, and I just want to say this morning, we love you. We love Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but we pray for you. And we are so blessed to have you here with us this morning. God bless you. Am I on there, guys? Well, good morning, New Covenant Church. It's a great pleasure and uh, honor, really, to uh, get to be with you on Palm Sunday and just to get to be with you. Uh, Pastor Sam and I met each other about two years ago, a little over two years ago, and uh, it was one of those connections, you know, it doesn't happen very often in life, where you instantly have that heart connection and there's a friendship that happens immediately. And we just sat together over lunch, and lunch turned into two or three hours of visiting and sharing our hearts. And uh, I have to say that God's provision of a friend in my life has been awesome, and so I'm thankful uh, honestly, for Pastor Sam and for Yvette, and and to be able to be here now with you, because I get to hear about you all the time, uh, to get to be here with you and the honor of being able to share God's word with you this morning is truly a, a pleasure for me and truly an honor. And I know that all speakers say that, but it's really an honor to get to be with you, to see you face by face to get to know some of your names, to celebrate this uh, Palm Sunday together with you. Uh, Melissa and I, my wife and I, moved to Israel uh, 23 years ago. We like to say that we've been in Israel for 23 years with a seven-year break. So this is our story. We moved to Israel in, in 1996, and uh, we began in a prayer ministry there. We were going to be doing uh, a kind of a hosting of people that would come from around the world to pray for Israel and to do prayer walks in Jerusalem. And so we helped get this ministry started. 
we were brand new married. We'd been married for about two and a half years, no kids yet, and we had the future in front of us. And we were invited to come and and help start this prayer ministry. And so we moved to Jerusalem, thinking that we would be there a maximum, like a, a year maybe two years. That's a long time to go to move to another country and to live outside of the United States. So we were going to be there for maximum two years. And that two years turned into 13 years. And in that 13 years, we served in three or four different ministries. And during that 13 years, uh, King of Kings, where we're at now, was our home congregation. We went there, and it's a small congregation, so you do everything. We were a part of the worship team, and we planned activities, and we carried out the activities, and we cleaned up the activities, and we were on the deacon board, and we did everything that you can do in a small community. And, and then after 13 years and, and two babies being born there, uh, Israel, the country of Israel said, you've been here too long, and it's time for you to, to leave and to go back to your own home country. So in 2009, we moved back to Colorado, and I got to serve in the church that I grew up in. It was an honor. It was a prayer of my life. I got to be the marriage and family pastor and develop for the very first time in the church the marriage and family component of the church. And the whole time that we were back in Colorado, that whole seven years, we missed Israel. It was our home and and in our hearts. And we prayed continuously, God, let us someday get to go visit Israel again. And and then after uh, seven years, uh, six years actually, we were called by King of Kings and they invited us to come back and serve on staff with them. And the government gave us a visa to come back. And so we've been back now for three years, serving as a pastor on staff at King of Kings, where we had always helped serve before in an unofficial way. Now we were official and got to be a part of it. I have to say it's one of the most exciting things that we've ever gotten to experience as a family, just to see the way that God moves in our lives. And, uh, and so one of the things that we've learned and we want to talk about today is this idea of Sabbath or Shabbat. In Israel, it's called Shabbat. And Shabbat happens every single week, just like it happens here. But it happens from Friday night as the sun goes down to Saturday night as the sun goes down, a 24-hour period. And in Israel, Shabbat happens because it's part of the culture and and everything just closes down. It's sort of like here in the United States, we really don't have anything like it. Sundays are sort of like that. And I think here in Texas, Sundays are more like that than what I experienced in Colorado. But it's kind of like Christmas Eve. There's this hustle and bustle and everybody's rushing around. They're trying to get all their shopping done before the deadline and everything's going to close. And then Friday afternoon, three o'clock, four o'clock, everything's closed. The buses quit running, the stores are closed. And so when we very first moved to Israel, this was a hard thing to get used to. So if you can imagine, we're we're used to 24-7 in the United States, and we get to Israel and stuff literally closes. Like if you don't get it bought in time, you're not going to get it on Shabbat. You're not going to find a place that's open. And and that was really hard to get used to at first. And then, then this idea that there was there's nothing to do. What do we do with our whole day? And, and everything was closed and the buses weren't running. And so I remember the very first year or so living in Israel, Shabbat would come and it would almost be like a dread. Okay, now what are we going to do? And then slowly, slowly started to, to slow our own selves down on the inside. 
And we started to take time just to have long, quiet times. It, it felt like a luxury, but we'd have, it was pre-kids, you can't do this after you have kids. We would have two and three hour quiet times on Saturday mornings because there was really nothing else to do. So we were in God's word and we were praying and we were spending time with, with each other. I got to know my wife really well during that, that period of time. And, and we'd go for walks and we'd go and visit Israeli friends. And suddenly I realized, I like this Shabbat thing. I get to just really, really rest and just dive into God's word and dive into God and, and get to know my friends better. It was awesome. And then that season ended and we moved back to the United States and that doesn't exist. Shabbat doesn't happen. Sabbath doesn't happen unless you carve it out in this culture. You have to actually be intentional to make it happen. So there we were back in Colorado and we tried to make Shabbat happen. And we made it on Friday nights to Saturday nights. And we would carve out this time. And I want you to know that's hard to do in America because everything happens on Friday nights. And so we were countercultural often by staying home as a family. And we would do our Shabbat blessings. And we're going to talk through that a little bit today. And what we found was it made our family strong. It set us apart in a way that made us strong, that gave us some identity, that gave us something to look forward to every single week. We still, to this day, are doing those exact same things. It's a lot easier in Israel, but it gives us something to look forward to every week. I'm telling you from Sunday, which is the first day of the week in Israel, from Sunday on, I'm looking forward to Friday because it's going to be a time with my family. It's going to be a time with my God. It's going to be a time to come into his house and to, to worship him. See, there's a myth out there someplace that coming to church on Sunday is celebrating the Sabbath. It's, it is the Sabbath. And then everything else is free. That's not true. There's a 24-hour period that God's designed for us to be restored and to be refreshed in. And that's the Sabbath. And church is a part of that, where we come and we connect with the body of believers. We connect with our God. But it isn't, in itself, isn't our Sabbath rest. Coming to church isn't the Sabbath. It's a part of it. And so, how many in here are, are workers? You have a job someplace. Okay, how, how many of you recognize that, th that this is our human condition? We have jobs. Some of them we have because we like them. Uh, some of them we have because we have to have them to cover all of our bases. And, and the human condition is this. We can only work so long, and then we get tired. We can only be awake so long, and then we get tired. There's, there's no such thing as perpetual energy you know, I love these superhero movies that show the superhero fighting like 900 people and he beats every one of them down or she beats every one of them down and, and then they suddenly step out and they have strength to go fight 900 more people and, and they never get tired. That is not our case. That's not our human condition. We get tired and we get run down. And here's a, a couple of statistics about work that you'll find interesting. The average person spends 90 hours at work over their lifetime. 
25% of employees say that work is their main source of stress and anxiety and that their job is their main source of anxiety and stress. Listen to this statistic from Japan. 10,000 workers per year drop dead at their desks as a result of the 60 to 70 hour work week that they are required to live. We're not quite there yet in America, but I think we're getting there closely. 64% of Americans canceled their vacations last year. One third of it did, for, did it for work-related uh, reasons, even though most of them felt that they needed a vacation more than ever from the year before. In the United States, workers take an average of 50, 57% of their vacation dates. This means that voluntarily, 50% of us are giving up our time legally that we have to take for vacation so that we can continue to work instead. And then we kind of wear that as a badge of honor. No, 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 I worked. Man, I've been working. I've been working hours. Oh, I even skipped my vacation because this job is so important. 5% of the people check in to work hourly on their vacation via email and phone. And 59% of them said that they check work during their traditional holidays like Christmas and Thanksgiving, because work is basically everywhere. That's the culture that we live in, that work invades our lives. But God has a different plan, and it is the Sabbath. God created the Sabbath while he was in the process of creating the world and creating you and me. Listen to Genesis 2, 2 and 3. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, he rested from all of the work of creating that he had done. Isn't that amazing? God, who is timeless, He doesn't live in the confines of time like you and me, and yet he was creating time, an environment where we're going to have to live, and then he uses time to test us, he uses time to train us, he uses time to to do that work of restoration in our lives, and in this creation of time by a timeless God, he created all of time and then sets apart some of the time as holy, as consecrated, as not like the rest of the time. And we see him, he he does this first with the Sabbath. He creates six ordinary days, just normal ordinary days, and then one day he sets apart as different and he blesses it. And he sanctifies it and he says, on that day, live a different way. Don't be like the culture that's around you, but actually live like this day is a separate, dedicated, holy day. And so the question is, why did God create one day to be holy? What's the point? What was in his heart? Now we know this about God. God's heart is to bless his people. In everything that he does, his heart is of love towards each and every one of us. And so when he created the Sabbath or the Shabbat, he created it out of a heart of love for you and for me. 
It wasn't a random thought. It wasn't a, oh, you know what? I'm done working. Let's have a party. We'll call a rest day. That's a good idea. It wasn't like that. He was intentional. And when he created the Sabbath, the Shabbat, he was doing it out of a heart of love for you and for me as a blessing, as a gift. If we want to see it as the gift that God's given to each and every one of us, this is the Sabbath. This is the Shabbat. And so he sets uh, this aside. and, And I think part of the answer of why God created this is because man... When God was creating, man was created to be the image bearer of who he was. That's part of our role in the world today is to be his image bearer. Not just Christians, every single human being. The other day I was walking into the mall and I was just looking at all the different kinds of people there are out there. And I had this thought, I thought, each and every person bears the image of our God. Put them all together, that collage of faces, and you're going to see a beautiful, extravagant face of our God. So we're, we're called to be image bearers. And so we see God working for seven day, six days, and, and in his work, he works and then he rests. We're called to be image bearers of God. And God then commands mankind to be fruitful and to multiply. He says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Too many times I think we read that and we think that just means have lots of kids. And some of us are really good at that. And, 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 but it's, it's more than that. God's given us his world. He created the world. Look what happens there in Genesis. He creates the world. He hands it to Adam and Eve and he says, now, this is my world. I'm giving it to you. Now go. Be, be fruitful. Use all of your creativity. Do everything that's in your heart to do. Make my world even better. Make it more like me. Because you're my image bearer. Go out and, and conquer the world and, and make it a better place to live. A better place to be. That's what the image bearing role is all about. And so we see in there that, that we get to be like him as we do our work. And then he gives us this example on the last day of creation. He pauses, says it's all good, and he rests. Did God need to rest? He's all powerful. He doesn't get tired. He is the superhero that never gets tired. But he sets an example as our image, the, the, the bearer of the image that we carry. He sets the example of work and rest. Work and rest. And he gives us this example that he charges the Jewish people with as he establishes the Shabbat with Abraham and with, with Isaac and Jacob to set aside one day as a holy day or a holiday one day that isn't like the rest of the days. It's, it's set aside and it's different. So we see our image-bearing role in this place. Rabbi Noah Weinberg says this about the Sabbath in his book, Shabbat, Heaven on Earth. He says, this is a long quote, but follow me in this, okay? Shabbat is the Jewish tool to make sure that we don't misunderstand our place in the universe, 
Refraining from work is the first step towards accomplishing this goal. God gave mankind the power to manipulate and to change the world because of this. We're easily lulled into the thinking that we control the world. Then comes Shabbat, or the Sabbath. Once every seven days, we step back from the world and we make a statement to ourselves and to God that we are not in charge of this world. We stop all creative work and acknowledge that it's God's world, not ours. We can manipulate the world, but we don't own it. God gives us clear guidance in how we can shape and change the world, but it's not our world to do with as we see fit. When we refrain from work on Sabbath, on Shabbat, we regain clarity and understanding as to who he is, who the true creator is. According to Rabbi Weinberg, when we step away from this control, we get back in touch with. It gives us the opportunity to remember who God is and and what his role in our lives is. And it gives us the opportunity to remember, remember who we are and what our role is. That's what the Sabbath is all about. That's why God created it. It isn't just a day off work. It's just, it's not a day to catch up on all of our chores, though we can do those things. It's a day to reflect and to come back into the right rhythm of who he is and his role in our lives and who we are and our role that we play out for him. Shabbat does this in three different ways, and I'm going to just go through these very quickly. Shabbat does this by setting aside a separate set-apart time. It does this by creating an environment where we have to trust God. And it does this through this idea of restoration. God wants a people. God wants a bride. I like that picture better. God wants a bride who is set apart and separated for him alone. They're not distracted by anything else, by everything else, but rather they are willingly making themselves set apart for him alone. That's the kind of bride I want. That's the kind of bride in this world that God has given me. That's what he wants from us, is that that people that are going to set themselves apart, they're not going to be like everybody else around. They're going to be focused on him alone, and they're going to live a life that's given strictly for him and to him. When God brought the children of Israel up out of Egypt, not only did he free them from slavery, but he freed them from the mindset of continual, ongoing, never-ending work. He commanded them in the midst of a worldwide culture where everybody worked all the time, every day. Sounds like today, doesn't it? He commanded his people in the midst of that kind of a culture to to take one day and not work. It was countercultural at the time. Nobody did that. The only people that did that were maybe the Pharaoh and, and the very rich that had slaves to do all the work for them. Nobody took a day off of work. How could you do that and still have enough food to eat and still have enough 
your animals to be in good shape and the, the barns to be repaired and the fences to be kept up and, and the work never ends. How could you take a whole day off of work? It was countercultural. And yet God commanded his people in the midst of that environment, take one day and don't work. And, and this set them apart. Imagine all the nations around Israel. There's those Jewish people over there. They, can you believe this? They actually spend one day where they don't work. It captured everyone's attention. Not just so that the Jewish people would get everybody's attention, but that God would get the attention. Nothing like this had ever been seen before. It was counter-cultural. And we live in a time today where it's uh, that same environment where work has invaded every facet of life. It's constantly busy. It's 24-7, 365. That's the environment that we live in. Listen to Walter Brueggemann. He's talking in his book, The Sabbath Resistance. He says, Shabbat concerns the maintenance of a distinct family identity in the midst of a culture that is inhospitable to distinct identities and its impatient reduction of all human life to the requirements of the market, a market theology that needs a generation that constantly needs and desires and leaves people endlessly uh, restless and unfulfilled and always in pursuit of something that's going to satiate the desires that they have inside. The Shabbat is countercultural. It goes against the grain of our culture, our world system, our world theology and ideology. The other thing that Shabbat does for us is it creates an environment of trust. I believe that one of God's main goals in our lives as he does this process of restoration in our hearts is to teach us how to trust him. If, if, if I know anything about people, because I see it in myself and I see it with people that I'm counseling with all the time, we constantly have to be reminded to trust God because we just automatically try to pick up the ropes ourselves. We try to make it work ourselves. We try to cover all of our own bases. We try to do everything so that we're covered. And God's constantly coming into that environment and saying, just trust me. Just trust me. I'm your father. I love you. I have a good plan for your life. Even though it doesn't look like everything's going to work out, even though it looks like the ends aren't going to meet, even though it feels like everything's out of control, I'm in control of your life. I have a good plan for you. I love you. Trust me. And Shabbat puts us in an environment where we have to trust God. I'll never forget, I dated a girl in, in college who literally took a Shabbat every week. Can you imagine? And she never, she, we were studying, we were studying all the time. And from uh, Saturday night till Sunday night, she wouldn't study. I'm like, that's my big study in time. When, when else am I going to study? I need to do it on the weekend. And somehow she was always pulling out those A's and passing every class and getting scholarships to other schools because she was honoring God in the Sabbath and she was trusting him. This is what God does with the Sabbath. He puts us in, a, in an environment where we have to trust him, that he's going to cover all of our bases, that even though we're not working, though, even though we're not doing those things that need to be done, 
he's still going to take care of us. And then the last thing that the Shabbat does for us, it gives us, accomplishes restoration. I love that word restoration because the first part of it is rest. God gives us restoration and it includes a a rhythm and a pattern for rest in our lives. This is important for us to capture. We have the mentality that we'll work, 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 and we'll rest over here if there's time. But God wants us to have a rhythm once every week of resting. And that's part of his process of restoration. I always like to say that the restoration is like God coming to this gross junkyard full of old cars and they're rusty and they're falling apart and the doors are all broken and the windows are broken and, and they're rusted out. It's, it's a bad scene. And God buys us out of that situation in our worst condition. And then he restores us. He puts us into his shop and begins to restore us over the course of our lifetimes. And in that process, rest is one of the recipes for restoring our souls, for restoring our spirits, for making us look more like him, for taking us back to that, that place where we looked like when we were originally created by him. Shabbat does this for us. It gives us a place of restoration, a place of trusting God, and a place of being separated, set apart for God. Listen to Jesus's words in Matthew. And we need to take this to heart. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. Now, I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hands, but if I asked how many people in here today feel weary and burdened, I'm convinced that if all of us were honest, that 99% of us are going to raise our hands. And Jesus is saying to us, come to me, all of you that are weary and burdened. So this is his invitation to you today. And I will give you rest. All of you take up my yoke and learn from me because I'm gentle, humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy and my burden is is light. Jesus is our Sabbath. When we take that 24-hour period, we come into relationship with Jesus because this is who he is. He's that God of restoration. He's that God that's set apart. He's that God that will fill every need that we have. And this is what the Shabbat is to us. Now, in our family, we have learned to celebrate the, the Sabbath, the Shabbat. Uh, and we started doing some cultural, traditional kinds of things, not because we wanted to be Jewish. We weren't trying to be Jewish. We weren't even trying to fit in. But we saw some beauty in the, the actual celebration of Shabbat that was relevant to us, that was relevant to our relationship with Jesus, that made our family stronger, and that made our relationship with Jesus even stronger. And so we started practicing some of these things. And I I just want to share very quickly what that looks like. 
So on Fridays, for us as a family, everything starts to wind down in the afternoon. Usually, we're out buying our groceries on Thursday, because if you wait until Friday to get your groceries, the grocery store is crazy, and people are pushing and fighting. They're like that anyway, but it's really crazy on Fridays. And so we have everything we hope in the house on Fridays, and then we get up and we clean the house, and we're, we're, we're doing this with this anticipation, with this excitement, Shabbat's coming, Shabbat's coming, Shabbat's coming. And we clean the house and we get all ready. And, and my wife, who is amazing, uh, will cook the challah bread or the special bread that we have for the Shabbat dinner. And we'll do dinner together and, and everybody does their chores. And then we kind of, everything slowly quiets down. And then Shabbat's there. We often, probably two to three weeks out of the month, have people coming in to celebrate with us. We invite people in almost every week to have dinner with us, friends and family and guests, and we, we just wanna, we wanna make it a blessing celebration time. And so we sit down at the Shabbat dinner, and this is what happens. My wife will light two candles. She says a blessing, and the blessing is really an invitation to the Sabbath to come in and fill our home, to fill our hearts. And then as that ends, then I have an opportunity to bless my children. Now we've watched this happen in other Jewish homes and, and the pattern is this. The dad will go to, the, to each one of the kids, the oldest to the youngest, and sometimes he'll say the verbal blessing out loud, and sometimes he whispers it into their ear. You probably didn't hear that. Sometimes he whispers it into their ear. And so this is what we do. My kids come to me and they'll sit on my lap or they'll, Josh is so big these days, 15 years old and he's taller than me. He doesn't sit on my lap anymore. He's kind of next to me. I put my arm around him and I get to speak a blessing out over my children every single week, 52 times a year. And I always ask God, God, give me a word, give me some kind of... So the blessing isn't the same every week, but I speak a blessing over them. And I think God speaks through me different times, things that they need to hear and things that God wants to put into place in their lives. So I bless my son and then I bless my daughter. And then the dad gets, the husband gets to bless his wife. Now, in a traditional Jewish home, what they'll do often is they'll read Proverbs 31, and we've even been in a home where they sang, where the husband sang Proverbs 31. Man, I can't do that. I don't even go there. And so I just bless my wife, but it's a blessing, a verbal blessing. I get to put my arm around her. And I want to say something to those of you that are married. Every single Friday when we get to that spot, we're not always on the same page. I'll say it that way. There will be moments where we're arguing and then suddenly we're in the Shabbat and I have to bless her now. (laughs) But something happens every single time I'm in that condition. God reminds me of who he's given to me and I get to lay down my my anger, I get to lay down my bad feelings, I get to embrace this person who God's blessed me with and speak a blessing over them. And I'm convinced that it's, it's made our marriage stronger because just out of obedience, I'm doing what I know I should do. And the Shabbat creates an environment for me to have to do it. So I speak a blessing out over my wife 
And then we have the wine and the bread, the juice and the bread, and we'll speak a blessing over the bread, and we each take a bite, and we speak a a blessing over the wine, and we each sip our juice or our wine, and then we sing a song, Shabbat Shalom, which means uh, peaceful Shabbat, peaceful Sabbath, and then we eat, and we fill up on the best meal of the week. This is the best the best the, the the Jewish thinking around this is that this is the queen of all days, that it's the best day of the week, that it's the best meal of the week, that it's the best time of the week, that this is the best of the best right here in Shabbat. And we try to do that every week as a family, and it is. It's I look forward to that meal every week. It's the exact same meal every week. My wife says to me, Aren't you tired of this? Oh no, no. I want that meal every single week. It's simple, it's roasted chicken, it's not steak, it's not fancy, but it's good. And it's, it's the way our family celebrates and observes the Sabbath. So I want to do the blessings as we take communion this morning. I'm going to say the same blessing that I'll say over the, the bread and over the wine. If we can have the uh, preparation team get ready for the communion and have them start passing that out. You guys can go ahead and start passing it out as soon as you're ready, and uh, we'll have the worship team coming up. And then as we get to the bread and the wine, this will be the blessing that I will speak out over the bread and the wine every single week. It's like, if you will, a family communion time where we acknowledge who God is and who he is uh, in our lives, and then we acknowledge who we are, and we say thank you to him for the whole week behind us, everything that he's done to provide for us, to nurture us, to get us to this next Sabbath. And then we ask him for his blessing on the, the week in front of us. And, uh, and it's truly the best time that we have together as a family. Uh, Pastor Sam got to share this with us last year as a f- family. And, and what we do, every time we have guests in, we just do it the exact same way. We don't, we don't ever change it. We don't ever try to make it different. We just do it the exact same way every week so that God is honored and so that our family has one thing that's consistent every single week. Amen. When we say our blessing, we do the blessings in English and in Hebrew. And though it feels ritualistic, I want to encourage you that this isn't a a ritual. It's it's a tradition. It's a weekly tradition of of our family. And again, I want to say we're not trying to be Jewish. God commanded us to observe the Sabbath. And so we're just putting pieces and parts around that to be intentional and to actually do what he commanded us to do, to observe the Sabbath. After we have our dinner on a Friday night, we'll often play a game together. We'll watch funny videos on YouTube. We'll play uh, different kinds of games. What we've started to do this year as a family, which I absolutely love, is that we have devotional readings throughout the week. So from Sunday through Friday night, 
we each have some different parts that we're reading. So Joshua reads some, Abigail, our, our daughter, reads some, my wife reads some, and I read some. And then when we come together Friday night after dinner, we give a report back. This is what the Lord showed me in this portion of scripture this week. And we get to share God's word together. It's opened up some outstanding uh, discussions as a family, talking through God's word. And uh, it doesn't get any better than that. We're, we're blessed as we get to do that. And then the Sabbath is 24 hours. So after we play and we eat, then we rest. And usually on Saturdays, that's our day to sleep in. The kids still get up early. They like to watch cartoons on TV. And uh, they'll get up a little bit earlier. But Melissa and I get to sleep in. And then we get up. And then our tradition is, did you get to do this with us? We did the Shabbat waffles together. Yeah, it's a low-calorie weekend between the dinner on Friday night and the, the, the waffles on Saturday morning. But it's a great time of just being together as a family. And then on Saturday night, we will end our Shabbat by making homemade pizza. And we usually watch a movie together. And we'll have, we call it our Shabbat movie night. And only recently did I find this out about what was happening on Saturday nights. We started inviting different people to come over on Saturday nights and have pizza with us and to watch a movie with us. And after doing this like two or three weeks in a row, my daughter, who's 12 years old, going on 25, said to me, Daddy, this is our time. Now, we could invite people to waffles, we could invite them to Friday night, but we can't invite them to Saturday night pizza and movie. Daddy, this is our time. We don't want everybody coming into our pizza night. Okay. So this is, this is what it has created for our family. I'm going to share these notes with Pastor Sam as well as the challah bread recipe that my wife uses to make the challah bread. If you want any of those notes or the, the, the challah bread recipe, Pastor Sam will have those. I apologize that we've gone long today, but I think it was worth it to be able to talk through some of the, the goals that God had when he created this one holy holiday in the week. Amen. So Jesus, as we saw on Friday night, if you were with us, was reclining at the table with his apostles during Passover when he instituted what we're going to celebrate right now in communion. And he said to his disciples that were there with him, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. In fact, when we look at it, he realized, as Pastor Sam said, he was getting ready to suffer big time and he knew what it was going to be like. And his most important thought wasn't that. I would have been focusing on that and excluding everybody else. But his thought was these disciples that he'd been pouring into for three years. And his whole heart was to be with them and to share this meal together with them because in this meal, he was going to reveal the new covenant. He was going to start the new age covenant, the the covenant new age. The age of the new covenant, that's what I'm trying to say. And so in Matthew... Matthew tells us that as they were eating, Yeshua took the bread. I guess that's what I have here, right? Yeah. Yeshua took the bread. This would have been the matzah that we had on Friday night. He took the bread and 
and he broke it and then he blessed it. And he said in Hebrew, and this is the same blessing that we say on Friday nights. He said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed are you, Lord, our God. You're the king of the universe that brings forth the bread from the earth. And Jesus, you are the bread of life. 